0: Well, I want to welcome you all to the uh, Institute of Catholic Culture tonight. We're, we're trying something new, and that is a book study. We've never done that before. I've wanted to do uh, Chester- Chesterton's Everlasting Man for quite a while, but I wasn't sure how we could do it. Um, and then I thought, well, if anybody could do it, Dr. Mark Clark can do it. So we, we have a challenge tonight, and that is uh, doing something more of a seminar uh, instead of a straight lecture. When I started the Institute over three years ago now, it was my ideal that we would have uh, a seminar style study every time. Everything we did was a seminar, Uh, not that it was all necessarily just a particular book we were studying, but even as we were studying um, uh, particular points in history that people would be well versed enough to be able to discuss it. And then I realized that unfortunately, as Catholics, we were maybe worse off than I thought we were. (laughs) And so we ended up in in more of a lecture style. But my, my goal is, with the institute is that when we have our programs, that those that have been attending our programs regularly will be well versed enough to be able to discuss these issues, to debate with the professors that are, that are presenting. Um, so anyways, a couple things uh, by way of introduction. Um, I wanted to read just very quickly an email I received from a gentleman uh, that comes regularly to our programs, and I'd like to share these things with you to know, make sure that you know that we're making a difference in people's lives. Um, as I might have told you, this is Sabatino, as I might have told you before, until I met my wife, I was at best a nominal Catholic. When we met, she was Baptist. After our interest in each other became obvious, she said she required the person that she dated uh, to be a Christian and attend church regularly. I then began attending mass weekly. When the questions came why Catholics do certain things, I began reading apologetic works of converts such as Scott Hahn and Stephen Ray. At that point, the hook was in and my thirst has never left. The Institute of Catholic Culture has become one of the most important resources to me in quenching that thirst. What I know from my study thus far though is that this is an insatiable thirst that will only be fully satisfied in the heavenly banquet that awaits us all. Until the day that the Lord calls me to that banquet, I am glad to have such an important resource as the Institute of Catholic Culture to aid me in my study. We keep our doors open at no charge for, re- for things like that, okay? We have Joe here tonight, who came early, is uh, converting to the Catholic Church. So welcome, Joe. By the way, the the gentleman I received that email from, who is here tonight, his wife unfortunately could not come, she soon afterwards converted to the Catholic Church. (laughs) Dr. Clark, uh, I don't really need to look at his his credentials because more importantly to me, he was a professor at Thomas Aquinas College in California before he came to Christendom College as professor of early Christian studies. Those two colleges in my mind are forming young Catholics in the faith in such a way that they are putting people out into our society to make a difference. Okay, That same thing I just said, nothing more, nothing less, nothing changed. The authentic tradition of the Catholic Church. Dr. Clark is very well versed in our topic tonight, and as a former professor at Thomas Aquinas College, he is also very gifted in the seminar format. Have you ever, how many of you have ever met a Thomas Aquinas graduate? Okay, you'll never forget it, will you? Because they argue better than anyone. Because when they walk into their classroom the first day of class, they open up their books, and the professor doesn't say anything. Okay, it's the students that start talking and debating among themselves and figuring it out, and the professor's there as a guide. In fact, they're not even called professors, right? Doctor, what do you call the, what do you call the teachers there at, at Thomas Aquinas? Tutors, tutors, guides, a guide to make sure a person doesn't go off one way or the other but st- stays on the true path. We're studying Chesterton. Why? Because for me, uh, this book, Everlasting Man, was in some ways a life changer. I always look back on my freshman year at Christendom College, and it, it's not facts I remember, it was a perspective that I gained. And I walked away from that first semester at Christendom College, and I looked at the world differently. I looked at the world through a new lens, and that lens was the Catholic faith. I thought I had looked through it before, but I was wrong. And, and great men like Chesterton and other great professors like Dr. O'Donnell at Christendom and others uh, gave me that gift, and it, it's my, I think, duty to hand that on to the people I know. Um, and so it's, a, it's an honor for me to finally uh, host Chesterton's Everlasting Man and welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Clark.
1: okay well thank you for coming out Uh, when the uh, the nice thing uh, about this is first of all let's we should get the Thomas Aquinas College thing straight right away Um, for those of you who have have not met a Thomas Aquinas College graduate I want to introduce you to Matthew Hudson Matthew would you stand up please back there he is at law school here in the area I think he came to give me solace when when Sabatino when uh, Savatino called me up and said, what about doing The Everlasting Man? I thought, you're going to do a book? Uh, You know, because the fortunate thing for me tonight is that you're not here to listen to me. You're here because of Chesterton. It's a beautiful thing. I can stay in the background. In fact, if I get out of the background, I'm I'm perhaps walking the plank a little bit. Um, The the, uh, areas of expertise, if I were going to talk to you about you know, the beginnings of the University of Paris or or Latin pedagogy in the sixteenth century or Virgil, Amor in Virgil. These are things I could I could lecture on, right? But Chesterton started off right with a confession. I'm not a Chesterton expert. I'm barely even a Chesterton reader. Uh, when I read Chesterton, the only things I've read of Chesterton, uh, when I was in graduate school, I was in med- doing medieval history at Columbia University, and. One of the professors was a a specialist in hagiography, the use of the writing of saints' lives to to write history. And so among other things, among other lives uh, that I read were Chesterton's Lives of St. Francis and St. Thomas, uh, which were, I found, to be utterly persuasive and charming. They certainly didn't qualify me as an expert on Chesterton. And it just so happens in the volume that I have, the Everlasting Man, the Ignatius Press edition, is sandwiched in between uh, those editions, I think in part because of chronology, right? He wrote St. Francis shortly before he wrote uh, The Everlasting Man in, in 1925. So, um, so in any case, this is a great experimentum. I guess they, it's an experimentum for the Institute because you all haven't done a book, and I hope you'll forgive me for saying you all, I have a good friend who tells me I'm in the South, I can now say, y'all, um, you haven't done a book uh, uh, before. Well, I've never led a seminar with this many people before. Okay, <laughs> So we're even. We're starting off even. Uh, it's, it's not an easy thing. And the thing about Thomas Aquinas College, when freshmen walk into a classroom, usually there's 18 freshmen in a section. You sit down with them and you're doing various courses. You have to do all different kinds of things. I'm used to doing things as a non-specialist. I had to teach uh, ancient astronomy and, and medieval and early astronomy there. I had to teach all kinds of things. They expect you to be able to lead anything because you're not a professor. I'm not a professor here tonight. I'll be a tutor, right, which means that my, our task is a collective task, okay? We're going we're to read and think about this and, and scrutinize what Chesterton has to say. And the beautiful thing about Chesterton is he puts his arguments right up front. You cannot possibly mistake what he's setting out to do. So then we're going to figure out how to evaluate them. Now tonight, tonight is a little bit the setup session, okay? So the way that, the way that Sabatino set this up is we're going to do the introduction tonight, okay? But it's an introduction, too, in terms of method. So let me, if you don't mind, bear with me a little bit. Bear with Mark Clark a little bit. Well, I sort of give us a little bit of an introduction to how I think we ought to try to do this as a large group. Okay? Normally at uh, Thomas Aquinas College, the tutor walks in and after you pray, you ask an opening question. Right? That's our question. So tonight, we'll leave here with a question right, that we're going to try and answer as a group. Now, if the tutor does a good job, that question leads to discussion. It leads to fruitful fruitful deliberation. And most of the time it does. If it doesn't, well, silence. Terrible silence. And we will probably find out how long we can endure terrible silence. I know I can endure it for a long time. I'm, I'm a trained tutor. Uh, we'll see how long you can endure it. But since Matthew's here, I think he, he may come to my rescue on, on various occasions. So, but then those 18 freshmen, all of whom, as Sabatino said, are filled with vim and vigor and intellectual ard- ardor, they come in and <clears throat> it is true chaos. It's a, it's, a, it's a train wreck at first. Everyone crawling all over. Everyone. Irre- irrelevant. I mean, it takes probably six months for those 18 young people to learn to collaborate, right? As opposed to antagonize, right? There's a big difference, right? Um, uh, you can, there are many ways to antagonize. You can ignore. You can contradict. You can challenge openly, right? There's all sorts of ways one can do this. But we don't have six months, right? So here's what I think we should do. I think. Uh, we're in a big hall. I don't know your names, um, but I think it would work if we do this. If you have uh, a, a something to say, get my attention in the old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon way, um, and uh, and and then I will try to keep track of. You know, if it gets to be thirty-five hands, then I know we we'll have a barn-burning discussion. But please be patient with me because I might not get to you right away. But when it comes your turn, and I'll certainly try to make it your turn, um, uh, stand up and state your name, right? It's going to be hard, right? It's like the kiss of peace or something like that, right? I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's hard for Catholics, right? My name is, uh, and then state your comment. Now, the risk, obviously, is this. Suppose we're talking about one thing, right? And you say, put your hand up, and then I call on you ten people later, Right? Meanwhile, the conversation has moved way far. Does that make sense? And that could be annoying, comical, tragic. It could be. It could be a number of things. But what we're going to do with that is, if you if you hold up your hand, you know, I'm I'm thinking. I've been trying to think up a method. Looking at as more of you walked in, I started thinking faster. Um, <laughs> the the uh, if you hold up your hand like this, I take that to mean you have a quick point right on topic. Does that make sense? So it won't be much of an, in, of an interruption. I may even resort, not tonight, I don't think we'll need to tonight, but for the next two sessions, next Thursday and two Thursdays hence, I may even take notes for a cue, right? Um, just to uh, make sure that there's some impartiality. So um, I think in terms of method, now, do you have to read the whole book, right? First of all, I'm, I'm, I just having spoken with five or six of you beforehand, there are probably 50, at least, different reasons why you're here, right? Um, Chesterton being common to all of them, right? But maybe, maybe in fact, some of you, doubtless, uh, a, a, someone in here is a Chesterton scholar, right? You probably know far more than, than I could if I went, went, went for studies. Um, and that will be really helpful to us. The beautiful thing about this method is if you have someone who's really an expert, as long as they're willing to work in a team, it helps. It's really helpful, right? Helps, helps to sometimes shed light on things, right? But we're all also equal in the sense that we're reading the text, right? We're going to take Chesterton seriously. That's what we're going to try and do. We're going to take his thoughts seriously, take his arguments seriously, and see how it works, Now, one thing, I'll talk just a little bit about my own background um, that will explain a little bit how uh, the approach I'm going to take to this. Um, I am not an expert. I'm no inkling I'm not an expert in the, uh, the literature of this period, but I'm a historian. And right away, Chesterton starts off talking about history, right? The book is pregnant with history, right? And so history... Um, the standards for judging historical arguments are fairly straightforward, and so I think they're accessible to most of us. Right? We'll be able to look at the evidence he presents um, and and consider it. Now he makes some startling claims, and in about ten minutes we'll get to those startling claims and we'll start to talk about them a little bit. I think they're startling, and and uh, but secondly, also I'm not I'm a historian. I was trained in history, but. my specialty, what I write in, is the history of theology. And I write on the Bible and theology in the Middle Ages. Now, if you write on the Bible and theology in the Middle Ages, the period right before Thomas Aquinas, those guys are reading the entire tradition. So, you know, you're you're talking about the entire tradition of biblical commentary, right? Now, we're going to have to decide what kind of book this is, right? Right away, you're tempted to think, Apologetics, right? Well, apologetics is under theology, okay? At least partly, right? So um, the question is, who writes apologetics right? these days, right? Well, most of the apologetics I'm familiar with are patristic apologetics, right? Back when the church was actually the underdog, right? Um, before the church became the favorite, right? After Constantine. So, um, but clearly... Chesterton is presupposing that the church is the underdog again, right? And so he's writing a book of apologetics. Okay, so he's also extremely well-read. So he's constantly citing philosophy, um, and he's citing science. He's citing literature. This is uh, a man who knows everything. And so in that sense, who can keep up with him, right? We can't. But the nice thing about that is I don't have to do all the work. We can all do that together. And so, uh, hence, I invite you to consider participating, right? And with, with a good deal of good humor and patience, given how many of us there are, OK? So far, so good? All right, so let's put out the, what I, I'll, I'll put out. In fact, let me read the text. In fact, it's a good old TAC tutor trick. Um, by the way, it's not an easy text to read. Uh, uh, you know, people have said that uh, Chesterton needs translation himself, <laughs> um, uh, and I'm sure you may uh, you may you may have sympathized with that view. But look at this introduction. He says, um, "Let's see." And we don't have the same edition, okay? But um, in here, the paragraph starts off. It's in the introduction. He's talking about what he had in mind for this book. And he says, as soon as I had clearly in my mind this conception of something solid in the solitary and unique character of the divine story, it struck me that there was exactly the same strange and yet solid character in the human story that had led up to it. Because that human story also had a root that was divine. Have we found the text, those of you who have the, have the text? No. It's, let me see if I can help you locate it more exactly. It is in your edition, page 12. It's one, two, uh, three, four, five. five paragraphs in in this edition. Yeah, in the introduction. So when I'm reading, I'm reading from the beginning of that paragraph, and I'm about about to get to the heart of the text, that I think really sets, he, he sets it right out there. This is where he says, this is what I think. He says, because that human story also had a root that was divine, I mean that just as the church seems to grow more remarkable when it is fairly compared with the common religious life of mankind, so mankind itself seems to grow more remarkable when we compare it with the common life of nature. Now, I was thunderstruck when I read that, those, those lines because having taught mathematics at Thomas Aquinas College, I know all about proportions, and Chesterton just gave us a proportion, right? Didn't he? A is to be as... C is to D. right? Now, he's not claiming that it's mathematical. But nonetheless, he's telling us that Christianity is to religion generally as man... Mankind, is to nature. Okay. Now, the second point in the introduction, right, is how are we going to see that? And Chesterton's claim, I think you'll all agree at least with this, is that it's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of perspective, right? If we're, the modern world, according to Chesterton in the introduction, is critical of Christianity, critical of the church in particular, right? Anti-clerical, but unfairly so because they're not in the church, but they're not far enough away to see it clearly. Even Sabatino, I think, in his introduction tonight said that reading this text as a freshman at Christendom College, he learned the value of perspective. Okay? So we're dealing with two things here. Chesterton sets up two things. One, how can we fairly see the the reality? And two, what is it we're going to see? Okay. So... My opening question, then our opening question, not, not only for tonight, in fact, minimally for tonight, but for the next two, two seminars when you come in, is, is that proportion right? Is he right? And so, here's how I'm going to start it off. We're going to practice. Let's take the first part of it. Christianity he's saying Christianity stands so far outside of ordinary religion, right? As far as man stands outside of nature. Now, right away, it seems to me that is a quixotic claim. Now, lest you burn me at the stake for saying that. The reason I say that is what is there about Christianity, the principles of Christianity that are so radically different from, from other religion? Now, Chesterton in this book, he talks about Islam, he talks about Judaism. He talks about all different aspects of religion, ancient, medieval, and modern, right? But the one I want to start with is Greek and Roman religion. Okay? It seems to me that may even be the most important one he's talking about. And and I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Socrates. Socrates, the prototype of the philosopher in the Platonic dialogues. And and we're not, not getting into little arguments. Is it Plato speaking? Is it Socrates? But we'll take Socrates as Socrates. Socrates is uber-rational, uber-rational, right? You meet Socrates in an argument, you lose. <laughs> Unless maybe you're Aristotle or St. Thomas, right? <laughs> so Socrates asks questions, and then he asks another question, he asks another, so Socrates has reason down cold, okay? But Socrates, he's also a mystic, right? Right? Socrates, for those of you who have read the dialogues, he constantly makes reference to the God. The God who speaks to him. It's, it's, you know, it's, it comes out in a number of dialogues, but perhaps most exquisitely in the Apology. right? Um, in the Apology where Socrates, he is saying, I'm at peace. This is what the God wants. Right? He's got this direct personal connection to the divine, right? And it's hard not to read that dialogue and these other dialogues with tremendous sympathy, right? So it seems to me right away that Chesterton sets for himself a really high goal. How is he going to distinguish Christianity such that Christianity stands really, really far outside what seems to me a marriage in Greek pagan religion, of philosophy, and theology, of faith, and reason. What do you think? Well, first, could I invite you to stand up and state your name? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm Cindy uh, Colin Smith. Thank you. Um, oh, should- stand up while you speak. I think it'd be easier so everybody can hear you.
0: Okay. Um, this is this is actually on a writer who's not Catholic but is uh, friends with the Catholic tradition, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, when he was also considering a similar argument, said that the, um, he felt that the differentiator between Christianity and all other religions was grace. So that's just
1: grace. I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk around like a talk show host. Don't they do this? <laughs> My yeah. goodness gracious. You're you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, I'm, <laughs> I'm Susie McCrady and I just, uh, it, as you were speaking, kind of hit me that um, if we believe that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then he is the center point of all that came before and after. So Christianity would have been the reason we have religion, and man, as man, would have been the reason we have nature.
3: Sir. I think that, obviously, man stands at the pinnacle of, of, of nature. I mean, he's part of nature, he, 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 his flesh and blood and the like, uh, but yet he stands apart and is distinct from it and is superior to it and governs and rules nature, in essence. Uh, Christianity distinguishes itself from other religions, in my opinion, because of the real presence. We take communion, we internalize Christ in some manner he becomes part of us. It gives us enormous dignity that Islam, Judaism, and Buddhism do not have. In, in, in a sense it sanctifies us and only that can sanctify us, only that can take us to this next level.
1: These are really good comments. Um, uh, I first, it's Chuck, right? First, Chuck and then you, so you're next. okay? Um. My name is uh, Chuck Maloney, and it strikes me that Christianity asserts a claim of a belief in absolute truth in the person of Jesus Christ as compared to maybe other religions that may assert truth in principle. And the corollary, I mean, the, the association I make to man in nature, is that man in all of nature is the only creature that through the use of his reason can recognize truth and searches for it. Thank you.
0: I'm, I'm Peter, uh, actually, you kind of stole my thunder there. Because I was, I was going to make a similar point that um, man has reason uh, whereas we don't see reason in nature itself uh, but also I think Chesterton makes this point later on, that other uh, faiths have, uh, particularly paganism, had imagination and this desire to know God, but Christian, and and on the other side you had Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, who had reason, um, to simplify things a little bit, uh, and Christianity kind of combined those two desires, combined uh, the the beauty and. Uh, the desire to uh, interact with the transcendental of of the pagan religions with the reason uh, of the philosophers.
1: Thank you. What's your name again? Peter. Peter. Okay. Sir. My name is Bob. There's a great little book that addresses this called, by a, I don't know if he's a theologian or an apologetics uh, guy, named Peter Van called Socrates Meets Jesus and uh, it touches on the whole point it's a complete fiction it's it's Socrates showing up at Harvard Divinity School and engaging in debates (laughs) but it's a it's a great creation about this question about Christianity being different from all other religions because it claims that God Socrates realizes what he couldn't identify in the God which was that. Uh, God creates the universe and then injects himself in the universe. Okay, now, um, I'm going to play the tutor a bit here. Um, A number of the comments have been, uh, uh, have come from within, the perspective from within, right? So, uh, a number of people have talked about grace, uh, the real presence, truth, um, Christ as the uh, alpha and the omega, Right, so, and that's perfectly understandable. The question I have is that the standard that Chesterton sets for himself, as far as evaluating the uh, the argument,
2: Um, no, because he's he's trying to. It seems like he's trying to speak to these people who are in this middle, stuck in this middle place where they can't see. Uh, Christianity at all whether from the inside which is what most of the comments are doing they're saying from the inside this is what Christ is and this grace and whatnot but he's not he's saying that they're so stuck they can't even see it from the outside like the Confucian who can at least respect it and say okay Christianity is God was born in a cave and God actually died on a cross which Chesterton does a great job of reminding us how strange that is to the rest of the world outside of Christianity. We look at the crucifix and we often think, oh yeah, okay, there's the crucifix, there's Jesus. But to the rest of the world, to think that God died on a cross, that's absolutely ludicrous. And, but, and they may be able to appreciate that for what it is, but not accept it. And I think that's what Chesterton is trying to do. And my name is Casey Kahn. Sorry. Thank you, Casey.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. There were other comments over here, too. I see other hands? Yes.
2: Hi, I'm Jenny. Um, this is kind of short, but um, from from the outside, I would think that one of the things that uh, that connects Christianity and, and man is that both of them prosper almost against expectation. You wouldn't you wouldn't have expected Christianity to grow the way it is, and if you look from a physical or an external standpoint, you don't understand why the human race is also also expanded like it did.
1: Now it's only natural that tonight we're going to anticipate um, many of the arguments that Chesterton himself goes through, right? So the next couple of sessions, the first one we'll go through part 1 of the book uh, and maybe get a little bit into part 2 because we have to ne- leave time, ample time at the end for to talk about the conclusion. And Chesterton's self-evaluation, right? So um, uh, some of what people are touching on is Chesterton himself brings up these points, right? So, so now we seem how here we have uh, a case for considering l- looking at Christianity as a Confucian might, okay? Um, now, how are we going to do that? Is that possible? Well, one way we could do it is we could turn it around, right? And we could look at what would seem to be strange to us, okay? So let me just put on the table, Um, we were reading today, or yesterday I guess, I was reading yesterday with my intermediate Greek students at Christendom College, we are reading Herodotus, right? And Herodotus, um, he tells the story of Croesus, King Croesus. And for those of you who don't know Herodotus, he's a wonderful storyteller. Well, Croesus, Croesus gets visit, he gets a visit from one of the seven wise men of ancient Greece. Okay? And Solon. Solon, the Athenian lawgiver, the famous Athenian lawgiver. Now, Solon represents reason. He is the quintessentially reasonable Greek. In fact, uh, he, he goes on a 10-year vacation uh, telling everybody he's actually going to go sightseeing and when, in fact, he's really getting out of the way of the Athenians so they won't mess up the laws. Because if he's gone, they can't change the laws, and he wants them to learn under these laws. So he wants Athens to learn how to live justly, right, in accordance with reason, specifically. So he goes, travels to Egypt, and then he goes to Persia. Asia Minor, where uh, Croesus has established himself as overlord of all of Asia Minor. Croesus is rich beyond compare. Right, everything has gone well for him. He has everything he could possibly want. He's got treasuries uh, as far as the eye can see, and he he's so and he has visitors all the time. So this guy Solon comes in, and so Croesus says, "Well, who's the happiest?" And the word is in Greek, it's hard to say whether it means happiest or most satisfied. I mean, it has a whole bunch of connotations. It could mean prosperous, richest. You don't want to take it that way because who's the richest guy? Well, Croesus, you are, right? So who's the happiest guy you've ever seen? And Solon, without blinking, says, names, names a, uh, uh, an Athenian citizen, right, who's got um, children and children who have children, and they're all living successfully, right? And everybody has enough food, and everybody is happy and producing big families, and Athenian farmers wanted to have big families. And so one generation after another, and then this old grandpa, uh, in one of the Athenian battles with a neighboring city, right, gets out there and gets himself killed in the front line. Now, it was a rout on the Athenian side, but he, this old man, has the glory of dying for his city, right? This is number one. Croesus, he's willing to put up with being second, right? So he says, Well, who's number two? Oh, number two, Cleobulus and Biton. Croesus, his head rolls back. Cleobulus and Biton, who are these guys? Well, Cleobulus and Biton are, are two Greek youths whose mother wanted to get on time. To, to a religious festival. And I'm telling you, you read it, it's just like, if you've ever grown up in a Catholic family where you're late for Mass, you understand this story. I mean, it's just like, Dad is just like, now I play that role. Let's go! We're late. We've got to get there. So, the mother, and, the, and, and the, the, the Greek says, it was absolutely necessary that she get to the temple on time. Right? There's, that's exactly what it says. Hard to understand, but that's what it says. And so, but... How could she get there? The car was the wagon drawn by two oxen, and the oxen weren't cooperating, right? So what happens? Her two, her two sons put the wagon on their shoulders and drag her five miles up to the temple, right? This is piety, right? I mean, I don't think my brothers and I would have put my dad and my mom on our shoulders and carried them five miles up the hill to church, right? This is pretty exciting. So these guys, they drag the wagon up there. And then what happens? What happens at the temple? Well, first of all, all the men, all the men congratulate these two young guys for being such strong, good, good guys. All the women congratulate the mother for having such great sons, right? What does the mother do? Why am I telling you this crazy Herodotus story? I'll tell you in just a second. Because the mother... Then praise, I think it's Hera, I think it's the temple of Hera, praise, oh God, I can't thank you enough for giving me such beautiful, pious sons. I pray that you give to my sons whatever it's best, whatever is most fitting for a human being to get. It's a pretty good prayer. Right, She follows it up. Right, So what happens? The, the, uh, the God answers the prayer. How? According to Herodotus, the two young men, after feasting, they go to sleep in the temple. And those of you who know the story, what happens? They die. What did the God give them? Death. Why? Because it's better to die than to live. And why is it better to die than to live? It's better to die than to live because you're with the gods. Right? And so, here is Herodotus, Greek, you know, the first big Greek writer after Homer, and we're talking ancient Greek religion, truly ancient Greek religion. Right? And already, we have Solon, the Athenian reason, right? Coming now, we are strangers to that ancient to that ancient world. We really are. I mean, if you read these texts, you realize uh, maybe not as strange as we might be, say, to the East and Confucianism, right? To Oriental culture, but it's a lot of centuries um, to go back. When well, you look at that, I you read that, you can't help but admire this and think, boy, oh boy, that seems an awful doesn't that seems that seems like a at least that. Foreshadows maybe a foretaste of of uh, of Christianity. So again, Socrates, Solon, the lawgiver, the pious mom, the boys at their cut down in the prime of life for death. So um, again, it's going to be really hard, right? Um, wh- how, what do we think? Does that is that Christianity on the way, or is it something? All together different. Oh, here we go. I think once again it points to
2: because Christ is the center. Whether you believe it or not, He is. It's a truth, and 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 because He is, then everything points to Him, foreshadows Him in some way. And again, Christianity is the reason for those other religions, and in some way they were pointing to Him or looking for Him without even knowing it. Casey Kahn, and I, I think I see what you're saying with bringing up uh, Socrates and this other Herodotus, and 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 what the lady just said, basically um, by saying that that these things point to Christianity makes Chesterton's claim that Christianity is that much different, that much harder to establish later on in the book. I haven't read the rest of the book, but we do see these, you know, Socrates is talking to God, we're, I guess we're assuming it's God the Father. And, and same with this Herodotus. And you have some si- sort of answering of the prayers that we have in Christianity. So Christianity almost seems like it could be just like any other religion. And that's what Chesterton is worried about in his time because I guess there was a big movement in England, or, and you see it now, that, well, all the religions are just the same. And right now we kind of see that, in a sense, they are all the same. So it, it does seem like Chesterton's uh, set out goal is a lot harder than we're assuming.
3: Yeah. Hi, Laura. Um,
2: other religions are man searching for God
1: and Christianity is God searching for man. Now, um, mind you, I hope this, my goal here tonight is not to I'm not the devil's advocate, okay? This is not my goal. Um, my goal for us is to set up our reading of the book, right? And just so that we, you can see where I'm coming from, turn to the conclusion. Sometimes it's really useful to read the conclusion first, right? Anybody who's ever been to graduate school knows this trick. Um, but it's not, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, not a bad, it's not a bad thing. He says, um, he, he quotes Wells' outline of history. And he says, of this outline of history, it's admirable as an accumulation of history. It's splendid as a storehouse, a fascinating disquisition on history, most attractive as an amplification of history. But it is quite false as an outline of history. <laughs> Why? <clears throat> well, he says, I think the proportions are wrong, right? The proportions are wrong. The proportions of what is certain as compared with what is uncertain. Of what played a great part as compared with what played a smaller part. Of what is ordinary and what is extraordinary. Of what really lies level with an average and what stands out as an exception. And then a few lines later in that second paragraph he says, I am very doubtful whether I have conveyed to the reader the main point I meant about the proportions of history and why I have dwelt so much on, more on some things than on others. See, Chesterton himself, he knows he set out this proportion. He knows. He's actually got to, he has to show us that Christianity stands to religion as man stands to nature. Right Now, We've set up the first part of this tonight, haven't we? I think we have, right? Um, the, uh, uh, we, we all understand what the case he has to make, but we haven't really, some of us have. A couple people have talked a little bit about this, but I think we should at least set the table for this as well, right? Man stands to nature. Now, it could not have been better timing for this talk had I staged it myself, but I didn't stage it. Um, Those of you who have been reading the news, right, you know what I'm gonna say, don't you? Mm -hmm. Okay, Artie, right? Right. You've got to be kidding me. Science Magazine, 11 papers Mm -hmm. by 47 authors, researchers unveiled Artie, a 125-piece hominid skeleton 1.2 million years older than the celebrated Lucy. And by far the oldest one ever found. Right, when I saw this on the internet, I practically rejoiced. I got down on my knees and thanked God. Um, Tim White of the University of California, Berkeley says, to understand the biology, the parts you really want are the skull and teeth. The pelvis, the limbs, and the hands and the feet. And we have all of them. I mean, if you didn't know, he wasn't being comical. Um, you'd, you'd, have, you'd almost have to laugh. He says, That is the beauty of Artie. Good bones. <laughs> the completeness of Artie's remains, as well as the more than 150,000 plant and animal fossils collected, has generated an unprecedented amount of intelligence about one of our earliest potential forebears. Right? Even the author a little bit, even the author of Time magazine is a little cautious. Right with good reason. Right, so, um, so as we all know, anyone who's read a little bit into this book knows that one of the things Chesterton is going to talk about is the fossil record. Now, um, it is true that uh, dealing with with uh, with this sort. Now, the one here. Let me. In fact, why don't I ask this question tonight just to establish this. is the question right of man whether man stands to nature as something out really vastly superior to altogether <clears throat> distancing nature right? Is that question a historical question? Is it a scientific question? Uh, what kind of question is it? Somebody said something. Someone said metaphysical. Theological? Hmm? It's actually all of them. All of them. It's all of them. So it's a complex question. Um, <clears throat> when we read Chesterton, let's see what he says about this. But why? Why do we think this? Why? This guy says that's the beauty of Artie. Good bones. Are good bones? Is that what we need? Is that enough here? And if not, why not? I'm sorry, I just thought.
3: I'm Francis. i say man is a spiritual being, so no amount of bones and all material things can really truly make make.
1: But from, that, from the perspective that we're looking at, Myers Bill, by the way, um, his perspective, the writer's perspective, is reductionist. He's saying that what makes man, man, is his bones. If you find if you find bones that are similar to our bones and they're old bones, then they must be man, and that's all that you need to know. And and, and that's what Chesterton's reacting to. Okay. That reacting to. This this small point to add, Marla Hurtado.
0: I just was saying that it's a good starting point for his purposes.
1: It is. It is. It's true, isn't it? Bones, right? It's a good thing, right? We have one. The uh, this is just it's anecdotal but it'll tell you just how how much a single piece of evidence changes the whole picture, radically, right? I work on the 12th century. So there was a guy named Stephen Langton who was an archbishop of Canterbury when he and the barons got the Magna Carta from King John. That's in the early 13th century. So political theorists, lawyers, Historians have made a big deal out of Stephen Langton as Archbishop of Canterbury, gone over his life with a fine-toothed comb. And so according to that fine-toothed comb, Stephen Langton got to Paris around 1170 for studies, high school, basically. And then he started, he managed to get up into graduate theology school and started lecturing on theology sometime around 1187, 1188. That was the chronology of his life. And from that, they worked backwards, figured out where he grew up, what he did. Okay, so I'm just doing my little research on these classes. And Langton was one of the authors of one of these classes. So I went in reading this class at the University of Paris thinking it was written in 1187. Lo and behold, what do I discover? I find out that the manuscript actually is dated wrongly, right? That this class can be dated to 1172 or 1173. Now, that may not sound like much of a difference, right? Did Mark Clark teach at Thomas Aquinas College in 2004 or 1990? Well, Mark Clark didn't get the Magna Carta, right? This is important. And it actually, this is the top. This is the guy, basically, that was teaching when the University of Paris became the University of Paris. It was the very first university. I take my hat off to my oldest son's Italian godfather who claims it was Bologna, but still, it was the University of Paris, and so this is the university at the very beginning, Right? And so one tiny little note, right, changes the picture. Well, 15 years, but then, whoa, it's like a seismic shift. When did the university start? What were they teaching when? We've got to rethink all sorts of things, right? So this, this already is a seismic shift, right? They have a complete skeleton. They said 1.2 million years earlier, right? Older. Right? Older, 1.2 million years older than Lucy. So pretty pretty phenomenal. And okay, so Francis? Francis says, look, man is spiritual. Okay? And you can't tell whether Artie was spiritual. Right? Or maybe you can't. Right? Maybe we're going to be able to tell whether Artie was spiritual. Um, but Is that, is that the key? Is that what we have to show, to show that man is altogether, I mean, I understand what we've already said tonight as far as showing, I think we've said to show Christianity is altogether different from other religions, we're gonna have to show that some sort of degree of magnitude, right? That it's greatness, uniqueness, from listening to you talk greatness, uniqueness, truth came up a number of times, right? Uh, it, it is it is truth so much truth as to make the rest look like a pale reflection of truth, right? But what about this man versus nature side of the proportion? Is that are we is that how we're going to do it, Casey?
2: Well, I don't I don't think spirituality would be enough because if we take other religions and you talked about like the ancient Greek religions, they looked at animals having some kind of spirits in them or some sort of they have some sort of spiritual nature or that all of nature has some sort of, I mean, I guess they call it pantheism, that there's some sort of, or there's God in all things in nature. There's God in man and whatnot. So I don't think that would be enough to do what Chesterton is trying to do here by saying that man is this much different from nature.
1: Good. I'll tell you, every tutor at Thomas Aquinas College loves guys like Casey. They want to have guys like Casey in the classroom. You have to have somebody, right? You got to look at all sides of the question, right? You have to look at all sides. and You can never really be sure, right, that you're, you want to make sure you give the person the best. Give the opposing position, as St. Thomas did, right? That was his method. Give the opposing position every possible chance. Now, one thing in terms of method, right, because we're going to, if we're going to do this, we're going to try and do this. It's working okay. Um, one thing I should tell you that's really helpful to a discussion. What you're going to want to do, if possible, is bring in texts, right? Because the thing about it is, we're not having this conversation, and I, it wouldn't be, I don't think it would be nearly as interesting to have this conversation in a vacuum, right? What are we really interested in? Certainly not what I think, right? Chesterton, aren't we? Right? And we want to know what Chesterton thinks. Does that make sense? So let's take this question, um, this question we're talking about right now, and uh, what you'd want to do, right, Um, is you want, when you read, one of the reasons I wanted to do that is, ah, here we go. Look at the man. In the cave, I'm tr- I wish we had. Uh, it's the first chapter on the creature called man, the man in the cave. I'm in this in this volume. I'm on 167. It's towards the end. It's actually, I'll tell you, I'll count paragraphs back from the end. Okay, it's in the fourth paragraph back from the end. Okay, the fur, the very first chapter of the book. The, yeah, this is page one sixty-seven. The man in the cave. Okay, and he's starting off. Uh, he, for those of you who haven't read it, he's actually he's talking about cave drawings, right? And the fact that these er, these earliest the earliest men that we know about that were recognizably Homo sapiens drew they drew pictures, right?
3: He says, after
1: all, it would come back to this, that he had, d- man had dug very deep and found the place where a man had drawn the picture of a reindeer, but he would dig a good deal deeper before he found a place where a reindeer had drawn a picture of a man. Now that was fantastic. Is it time? Okay, exactly. And what, actually, I will not even cite the text I was going to cite because we're out of time, but Gretchen just did for me exactly what we needed to be. We want to... Bring Chesterton onto the table, bring his argument out there in the form of texts, and then discuss them. Does that make sense? All right. Good start. Thank you all. I hope I see a bunch of you next week, too. All right.
0: We're not going to do a question and answer as we usually do because. The question's been asked, and that's your homework, all right? As you read Chesterton, if you feel like your brain, somebody's sticking a finger in there and kind of scratching around, here's the reason, because you've been watching CNN too
1: much. And is,
0: is it really important? I think so.
1: Just so that we're all working towards the same end, can we have a restatement of the question? Sure. The question is, and and the, the thing I read from the conclusion there, Chesterton poses the same question, right? Have I shown that the proportion is as I've said? Is the proportion, is the proportion, is it? Are they my proportions, right? Christianity to religion, as man to nature, they stand so far outside of them. Have I shown you? That's our opening question.
0: All right. God bless you. I have your work cut out for you. I'll see you next week.